Parenting. It's challenging, delightful, and at times heart-wrenching. It is a journey that can feel profoundly overwhelming at times. And in a culture that sends so many confusing messages, raising emotionally strong boys can be difficult. It's so important, though, that this morning we are revisiting a conversation with David Thomas. He is the Director of Family Counseling at Daystar Counseling Ministries in Nashville. David, welcome to the Morning Conversation. I am honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Lots of things to talk about today with your latest book, but first of all, before we get to know you as an author, I'd love to hear a little bit of your spiritual journey, how you came to know and love Jesus. I was incredibly fortunate to grow up in a home with believing parents. And I don't take that for granted right. of what it was like to grow up always with that knowing and getting to sit front row and mm. see a mom and dad who trusted God and walked with God. And more than that, talked about what it was like to have an intimate relationship, something that was very personal. You know, the older I get and the more stories I hear from people, I just realize how incredibly grateful I am that that was my story. Although I always knew it and always saw it, I think it really didn't become my own until I was in college. And like most of us, you know, hit the first really complicated chapter, place of struggle in my story that I needed God in a new way. It was in that time period that I think it became more real to me and what it's been like to just walk with Jesus. I'm going to give away my age now for over 50 years. And so I am thankful for that legacy and think often about what that looks like, even in terms of what I want to pass on to my own kids. College is such a pivotal time. I was a youth pastor for a number of years. So I came up with this phrase that I would communicate to students, especially in junior high range, just to kind of get them challenged in thinking. And it's this, that your choice is the switch that turns on the power in your spiritual life and only you can turn it on. And a lot of times there isn't that full freedom to engage my own choice until I get out of the home. Yes. You know, even if you're not rebelling or anything like that necessarily, but when you get out of the home and now you hit that first week at school and college and go, how am I going to live my life? And what am I going to yes. choose? And am I going to go to church? My parents, they don't know or they, if I do or don't. And yes. man, all of a sudden, those choices you begin to make really begin to forge and bring to life and ignite that uh, faith that was in you. I could not agree more. I love those words. Yeah. And I think, you know, I'm just so thankful even hearing you tell that for all the different folks who are listening right now who are doing student ministry, whether you're with Mm. elementary, middle school, high school, college kids, just the important life-giving work that you're doing. I'm so grateful. David, you got the latest book. Now, let me play a little bit of devil's advocate first. Some would say, and I would probably join in that group, you know, our society has tended to emasculate men and boys these days. I'm thrilled for you to say that. And, and you know, I would absolutely agree with you and, and even go further in saying that in 25 years of doing this work as a therapist, this is hands down the most confusing time I've ever seen in our world in terms of understanding gender and understanding what it means to be masculine and feminine in this world. And so there is a need to really wrestle with that. And honestly, how wrong we have been throughout history in terms of defining what it means to be a man in this world, that if we are looking to the person of Jesus, if that is where we should be looking, where we want to be looking and forming a definition, you know, he was a man of tenderness, mm-hmm. a man of compassion, a man of mercy, a man of restraint. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many things about who he is. He walked in intimate, close relationship with other men. There was honesty, accountability, intimacy, all these layers that are really not at all how we define under understand and live out 
masculinity. And so I think it is a, a time for us to really consider and think deeply about what that means. And even the language I use in the title of emotional strength, I know a lot of men in this world who are physically strong. I know a lot of men in this world who are vocationally strong, but I don't know a lot of men in this world who are emotionally strong. And what does it look like to bring that strength to the equation as well? Yes. And even what does it mean? And that's the last statement that you made there. Is that why you specifically wanted to go after emotional strength in men? I did, because I think it is within that definition of masculinity that I think is really off. And I think it's why so many adult men in this world are living in a way where they believe suppressing emotion and self-reliance is the way to go. And just last night, I sat with a couple who were divorcing and this man refuses to go to counseling, refuses to get help, is not open to anyone else speaking into his circumstances. And every night, his wife is putting two children to bed who are crying and saying, why can't we be a family still? And I've sat front row to that story a thousand times over. I just want to talk about what it could look like to move away from suppression and self-reliance and more toward expression and being open to getting help, which is such a healthy way to live in this world. David, probably you wouldn't get a lot of argument in terms of people saying, yeah, men aren't the best at being in touch with their emotions. I think that would be a pretty universal thought. There's anomalies in the world, men who are good at it, which is awesome. Absolutely. But there's plenty of us that aren't so good at it. But so why is that such a prevalent thing in our culture that men aren't really in touch with their emotions and strong in that that area of their life? You know, I think there are three primary reasons. And the first goes all the way back to the beginning of our stories. Like if you think back, any parent listening on those first well visits with a pediatrician at 12, 18, 24 months, the doctor's going to be saying like, how many words is he saying? How many words is she saying? And what research would tell us is that girls are saying twice as many words. Hmm. So if her general vocabulary is larger, Hmm. of course, her emotional vocabulary would be larger. So we're going to have to labor longer (laughs) in that space to help boys even develop an emotional vocabulary. And if we jump ahead a decade, somewhere around nine to 10 years of age, boys begin to channel all emotions, fear, sadness, disappointment, confusion into anger. It's this Mm -hmm. instinctive biological process. So we're again going to have to be coaching boys and what it looks like to get below the anger. (laughs) And then if we jump forward from there, the third reason would be is that culturally, I think we support that. We say it's very much okay. It's, It's masculine even to be angry because anger is an emotion of dominance. It's an emotion we often associate with strength in many ways, but it's not okay to be sad. It's not okay to be scared. And so I think we factor all those three things in together. It's never surprising me to see a male who struggles in this space because we're going to have to work against those cultural messages, that limited vocabulary, and that tendency to funnel everything into anger in order to develop this emotional strength. So, David, you were talking a few moments ago about anger, and uh, that kind of becomes the central emotion of boys and men a lot of times. But what I'm hearing you say is there's other emotions that really are more true to what's going on inside them than anger. How do you help unpack that a little bit to not overreact probably to the anger and to understand that there very possibly is 
a deeper emotion underneath that anger that you have to get at if you're going to help that boy. I would say, first off, it's work. Mm -hmm. That's not something that boys develop abilities around overnight or even in a week's worth of time. That's work we're going to be doing over the course of our kids' development. And I talk about building emotional strength, much like we teach kids to ride a bike or swim in a pool. You know, you don't go to swimming lessons one time and you've got it down. I went to swimming lessons five years in a row and then I joined the <laughs> swim team and I was practicing strokes every summer. I'm still practicing those things. Mm. And so this is ongoing work. If we don't teach it, it's never surprising that kids don't know how to do it. I think about when I hear adults say to kids, you need to calm down. And yet I don't often think that kids know what to do, the work of calming down. Do I know how to get my brain and body from stress to settled? In the beginning of this book, I teach what I call the three R's, which is recognize, regulate, and repair. Circling around those three R's throughout development is, again, like teaching the skills of bike riding and swimming, that we want kids to be armed with these so they can navigate the discomfort of life. I'm seeing evidence every day of men who don't have these skills in place. In fact, I'll give you another recent example. I was in the airport not long ago on the day you may remember when we in the United States canceled a record number of flights. And I was trying to get from Nashville to Orlando for a speaking engagement. The airport was packed with people, adults and children. And in that time, I witnessed two men Men dressed in suits, professional, educated men being handcuffed and mm. taken away by security for screaming at a gate agent. The discomfort of just a delayed or canceled flight resulted in that because they don't have those skills. And I think the saddest part of that day for me was looking around and seeing how many kids were watching grownups mm. doing these really not constructive things, yelling, screaming, arguing, fighting, you know, all these different responses that were evidence of, of what we know to be true. This world is full of people who don't have regulation skills in place. They can't name their emotions and they can't navigate them. That's why the book felt so important to me. David, we're kind of well into this conversation about emotionally strong and we haven't really defined it yet. So again, I think we're, we're all tracking obviously together, but I'd like to not take that for granted. Talk about that a little bit. How would you define emotionally healthy? I would say those two words I just spoke might be the best Cliff Notes definition I could give. It's learning to name and navigate my emotions in a healthy, constructive way. You know, we are made as emotional creatures. We're going to come up against the discomfort of life. That's guaranteed. We're promised that this side of heaven in Romans. That's going to happen. Our job is just to name and navigate that in a constructive way or else we end up in the middle of the story I just told about the airport because here's the thing. I was feeling every one of those emotions. I was frustrated. I was afraid I wasn't going to get from point A to point B. I remember saying to myself, literally saying to myself, David, you got to practice what you preach in this book right now. So breathe, I said breathe. to myself, all right, breathe. Absolutely. <laughs> That's where I started. Breathe. Go get a bottle of cold water. All right. You've got 30 minutes left before the next possibility of catching a flight. Why don't you do some laps around the airport? Mm -hmm. Take some steps. Move your body. Like I was literally practicing everything I'm teaching parents in the parenting book and boys in the workbook to do because this is not work that expires once you hit your 18th birthday. This is ongoing work, skills we're going to be falling back on all throughout our lives. You know, David, as we're talking about being emotionally strong, I mean, you flip those two words around, strong emotions, right? The emotions are like strong. Like there's, there's times in my life where I'm feeling some kind of emotion. And even when I can 
cognitively get to the place where I go, this isn't good, I almost feel like I can't control it. It's so defining my my reality in that moment. Identify with us a little bit, those of us that are in that space of going, I mean, emotions aren't that easy to corral. No, they're not. They're big. And and I would honestly say for some individuals, they register even bigger. I was with a family yesterday of a six-year-old boy and the mom said, he loves big. He melts down big. Mm. Like everything he does in this world has an intensity to it. And, and quite honestly, I think that's true for a lot of people. And that's not a bad thing. That just simply means I've got a bit more to work with. The work of regulation may be a higher hill for me to climb, but it's very possible. And again, if we're developing these skills on the front side, it's all the more familiar all throughout life. As someone's listening this morning and they're hearing us talk about this whole area of emotionally strong boys. So what might be some indication that their boys are not emotionally strong and there's some really work that they need to put in before they kind of transition out of the house? I would first say for any parent listening of a boy or a girl who you hear evidence of what we're talking about and thinking, oh my goodness, my kid's struggling in that space. One of the things that I say clearly in the beginning of this book is that it's never too late. It's never too late to develop emotional muscles. Those men who got hauled off in the airport, my hope is that was a wake up moment for them and thinking, I got to do some work. I got arrested in the airport over a delayed flight, like whatever age, if you're listening and thinking about your kids or your spouse, like it's never too late. And then I would say, see it secondly, just as that it's work. It's not something kids are going to develop overnight. We're going to have to labor in this space. Some kids are going to take to the work quicker. If we think about that analogy of swim lessons, all of us know what it's like to take some kids to the pool. And it's like, they're just ready to jump off in the deep end on lesson one, it seems. And other kids who have a death grip on the swim instructor still at the third lesson. So some kids are going to resist this work more. The work is going to be greater for them. But I would argue it's some of the most important work we can equip kids with because, again, they're going to need this work when they're married themselves themselves, when they're parents themselves, when they're in their vocational settings, it's work we'll always be going back to. David, obviously parents, they don't want to enable emotionally weak boys. They want to power emotionally strong boys. But uh, there's things things that we can do if we're not careful where we are enabling that uh, unhealthy emotional responses to be there. So, so what are some yeah. things that you see and you would coach with parents and go, I know you, you want the best for your boy, but let me tell you some things that you're doing that are actually enabling the the issue and the weakness in their emotions. So one great example would be this. In our country right now, anxiety is considered to be a childhood epidemic. We have the highest numbers anywhere around the globe. The current stats are that one in four kids would struggle one in three adolescents. And what the anxiety research tells us is that the two biggest parenting mistakes with kids who struggle with worry and anxiety is escape and avoidance. It's like my kid is afraid of something. I'm going to extract them from that situation. What the research confirms time and time again is that to combat the anxiety, I've got to learn to do the scary thing. The definition we even work with in our practice is that anxiety is an overestimation of the problem and an underestimation of myself. Mm. And every time we as parents extract the kids we love from hard situations, we're confirming that definition. The problem's too big and you're too small. That's the most common way I see parents 
take the opportunity away from kids to get emotionally strong and where we've got a baby step with them toward the scary thing. So, for example, you have a kid who starts out maybe a little bit teary. Here we are right now at the beginning of a new school year. They're a little bit teary driving to school, which is normal. It's okay. We're helping them work that through. Maybe those tears give way to full on resistance, like they're locking the door when we get up to the pickup drop off line. And then I've known a lot of parents who are like, okay, fine, we're just going to stop schooling in this way. We'll homeschool. Homeschooling is a great decision if we choose that for the right reasons. Mm. We've got to really think intentionally about the why behind all of what we're doing. And are we, even without being aware, sometimes leaning toward escape and avoidance and communicating to kids, the problem's too big, you're too small, which we just don't want to communicate. And if I were to put that in a spiritual context, what we're also saying, even if we're not aware of it, is the problem's too big and God's too small. That's not at all what we want to be communicating. We want to communicate the opposite message, but we can't do that unless we're really thinking about what's behind our own responses. Probably heard of that statement, right? If you have a small God, you have big problems. If you have a big God, you have small problems. (laughs) Yes, there it is. David, I'd love for you to kind of speak to the parent and maybe specifically the man in the house who's got an issue with anger and it spills out on the family. He just doesn't have a filter. He's been able to engage. And I guess I'd love a little bit of encouragement and motivation of like, what impact is that persistent displays of anger in front of watching eyes of the kids? What impact is that having? I'll shoot straight with you. It's it's harmful long-term for two reasons, because research tells us time and time again that kids learn more from observation Mm -hmm. than information. So I could be talking about these things, trying to teach these things all day long. But if my kids can't see this on me, it makes it really difficult for them to learn. In fact, kids and adolescents have what we call mirror neurons in their brain that are firing at all times. And it's it's how any one of us learns to tie our shoes, to shoot a basket, to again, swim in the pool. We've got to see it to know how to do it. You can't just talk me through tying my shoes. I've got to see it done in order to understand the way the loops work and the pull. So if kids can't see this, and I would even challenge dads in particular, if your sons can't see this on an adult man, particularly the one they trust the most, that's the beginning place of this work. And I want you to be talking about that openly, buddy. I'm going to be teaching you these things, but I'm going to be learning right alongside with you. In fact, I, I wrote this workbook to go with a parenting book called Strong and Smart, and I designed it for six to 12-year-old boys. But I saw a mom just yesterday who said, David, I'm going through the workbook with my seven-year-old son, but I'll be honest with you, I'm using everything with my 37-year-old husband too. And I, <laughs> I laughed and said, that's fantastic. So if you're seven, if you're 37, if you're 57, you can develop these skills. It's not too late. And what a gift to the kids in our lives to hear the grown-ups mm-hmm. around them say things like, I still need to work on these things. This is something we're doing together. Yeah. I always tell parents, your kids know that you're not perfect. Like they're not expecting you to be perfect. As a matter of fact, it really helps them if you will admit it. Like if you'll just be this imperfect person walking before them in authenticity and integrity, it's so impactful in their lives. One of the top things I heard kids when I was really working a lot with youth is that would so frustrate them is when their parents would never admit they were wrong, never apologize. They weren't looking for perfect parents. They were looking for real and raw parents, really. Yes. They're looking for permission, not Mm, perfection. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. David, obviously, we live in a world that's filled with entertainment and young boys are often on screens. What impact does the amount of time spent on screens have on their development that way? Significant impact. You know, young as technology really is in our world, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, we're going to have even more. But Mm. 
there was a study done out of UCLA where they took a group of sixth graders and divided the group in half, gave all of them a quiz where they basically just had to try to recognize what a person was feeling by looking at a photograph, an expression. And then they asked half the group to go five days without technology. And the other half said, okay, keep using screens the same amount, brought the kids back in five days later, gave them the exact same quiz. The group who'd gone without technology for only five days scored higher Hmm. and significantly higher. I want that to be so deeply encouraging to parents listening. I mean, a small reset can happen in a short period of time where we can jumpstart that process again, that what those kids in that group had opportunity to do is just doing more life with human beings, which strengthen that skill set again. There are so many layers of benefit when we create healthy limits with kids. I'm not saying throw the baby out with the bathwater. Technology is a part of our kids' lives. It's part of their learning process. But we've got to introduce it and allow kids to have it with good, healthy limits, lest we're going to really impair them emotionally, socially, relationally on so many levels. In 25 years of doing this work, I have never seen as many boys who are disinterested in getting their driver's license. Hmm. And when I was growing up, I didn't know a single living, oh. breathing 16-year-old boy who oh, wasn't no. chomping at the bit to drive a car. 15-year-old, 14-year-old. Yes, yes, to taste that independence. But at the end of the day, learning to drive is risky. And I believe there are a lot of boys who are becoming more and more risk avoidant because they're just as happy to sit in their basement with a headset hmm. on playing video games. All the ways I see that translating, I've never seen as many boys disinterested in asking a girl to a school dance. I think it's robbing boys of opportunity for healthy risk as well. All that engagement in gaming is getting them disengaged from life, it sounds like. Absolutely. And think about it. There's risk involved in walking up to a girl and asking her to a dance and knocking on her front door and having to ask her dad for permission (laughs) to the prom. Like all these things that help them develop emotionally, that help them develop socially, that they're just disinterested in stepping into. They're just as satisfied to sit in the basement with a headset on and communicate with people in that way. David, I was I was excited about your book before we had this conversation today. I'm like twice as excited about it now. So talk about just as we kind of close here, how do you see the resources that you've created in this being used by parents? One promise I'm going to make right now to any parent, any grandparent, any educator listening is that I as a parent myself know what it's like to read a book connect with the content, but have absolutely no idea how to execute that. Like, yes, I agree with that. Now, what do I do? I was committed to, I'm always committed in my writing to making it user-friendly. So every single chapter, all 10 chapters end with five intentional practices. It's like how you could take the content from that chapter and put feet to it immediately. So my guarantee is if you buy the book, you're at least going to get 50 practical ideas Mm. to start with. There's so much more folded in, obviously. And then as I mentioned, the workbook, Strong and Smart, is taking all the content and putting feet to it for elementary age boys. Hmm. But as we've laughed together, it could be used with boys who are a little younger, boys who are a little older. And so I think it's easily applied. My great hope would be in the feedback I've gotten from parents so that we can, again, put these principles into practice tonight, tomorrow, the next day, the next day. That's not something we've got to work hard to figure out, go buy a bunch of props. It's stuff you could be doing tonight at your dinner table together to help boys be developing these emotional muscles. Well, David, this has been quite a morning. You have really given us some amazing insights and given us a lot to think about. And thanks so much for spending the morning with us today. Thank you for having me. I've so enjoyed talking with you. I'm grateful for the opportunity.